Hey guys, today's episode is for those rockers out there who geek out on rock history facts the way I do. I've got Christian Swain on the podcast. Now, he is the founder and producer of the brilliant podcast, The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, and it deep dives into the history of rock. So, in having him on today, I am definitely aware that I am putting myself in a position to get totally schooled. <laughs> but we are going to cover a lot. We're going to cover the evolution of the Sunset Strip, the musical earthquake that was The Beatles, Bob Dylan, The Birds, Folk Rock, The Wrecking Crew, and of course, given that we are both LA natives and you can never overdiscuss the enigma that was Jim Morrison, we're going to talk about The Doors. So stick with us. I promise you'll learn a thing or two in this one. Christian, it is so great to have you on My Rock Moment. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. Uh, I have plenty of rock moments. I'm sure we can fill up an hour here. <laughs> we can fill up an hour. Well, one of the things I actually love is having rock history experts on the podcast. And we all learn quite a bit. And I will call you. Well, then the you should history. you should call somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have dubbed you the rock history expert. And, and guys, just so you know, for those of you listening, Christian Swain is the founder and CEO of DIY and House Studios, as well as Pantheon Media. But you are the founder, producer, and host of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. And Guil Guilty as charged. Yes. Yeah. No. And it's wonderful. And guys, it is an unbelievable podcast that covers the complete history of rock music. Complete. Well, uh, up until about 1971 right now, we still have the other half to go and we've been working on it for seven years. So yeah, it's a 15 year project. <laughs> um, and uh, I am affectionately known as the rock and roll archaeologist and I'll, I'll, I'll gladly take that moniker um, because I think, you know, archaeology is about looking into the past. Uh, looking at um, uh, human interaction, culture specifically, and I and I think that's what I consider myself more than anything else as a as a cultural observer. And what I saw was, you know, the end of the 20th century, uh, beginning of the 21st century, uh, especially after um, you know uh, a century or now a millennium uh, overturns. There's a, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of looking back why you know this worked or how 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 the world we live in today was created and a big thing for me was you know obviously uh the music of the late 20th century uh culturally it was the most significant period in music history end of story um music was never treated as, as what we call quote unquote rock stars mm -hmm. musicians weren't treated like that you know mozart was not treated like that he didn't have private jets and things uh <laughs> you know he was working for the man the uh, habsburg uh, emperor at the time but uh, i felt that uh, that that period of time that music the creation the counterculture the huge significant cultural shifts of uh civil rights um environmental movement uh women's rights, gay liberation uh, that led to everything that we're at today 
had a lot to do with the music of the time because it was sort of the messenger, uh, it created a feedback loop with that culture. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, these, these things would comment on each other. The culture would happen and then the music would comment on it or the music would happen. The culture would shift because of that. Um, you know, famously, without doubt, 500 years from now, people look back and they'll be able to look at this band called the Beatles and mm-hmm. be able to see that as the top line of that uh, that entire movement. But just underneath that, you, you know, I have you know, your Bob Dylan's, your Joni Mitchell's, um, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Who, uh, on and on and on, which goes on from, you know, we, we go back from uh, 55 mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Elvis and the original cast of, uh, of about 10 people right. uh, in the original uh, rock and roll, which faded um, by 1960. If you've listened to the uh, the podcast, you know, Everybody's either in jail, they're in the priesthood, they're in the army, or what have they're you, ministry, or they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and um, but you know, obviously, February 9th, nineteen sixty four, Ed Sullivan. Uh, that uh, is the nuclear explosion that just changes anything, everything. There is no putting the genie back in the bottle after that point. And so we, we, we wanted to explore that and look at how it created this world and how the music, the culture, and the technology all came together to create this, uh, this period of time. So it started with rock and roll archaeology. And then basically what happened is it does take us a long time to research, write, and produce each of these episodes. Uh, as I said, we're seven years in. We probably have another seven to go. And um, so we started getting a lot of fan mail. So the only kind of hate mail we ever got was, can't you do more? And um, uh, along with my uh, my business partner, uh, Peter Ferrioli, who helps produce uh, the show as well, uh, we started coming up with other shows. We, we said, well, let's let's give we'll, we'll figure something out. So we we came up with what were called the original six, which were all organically created uh, internally. Uh, there were a couple of recap shows, um, but we also did deeper digs and a few other shows. And so what ended up happening with the original six is we started getting submissions from people who had made podcasts saying, hey, we want to be on your music podcast network. And we, Peter and I looked at each other and said, oh, we have a music podcast network. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have 90 plus music related uh, podcast shows on the Pantheon network, of which rock and roll archaeology is the cornerstone. Well, I, just what you've done so far. I have listened to all, pretty much all the episodes that you've got up until now. And I listened to one, you know, and I'll back up because the people that listen to my podcast, they love classic rock. People that listen to my mm. podcast, they love classic rock uh, coming out of California in the 60s and 70s. And listening to your episode, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, Oh, which yes. really five summers in LA, right? Five right. summers in LA. Exactly. Mm. I thought to myself, if Christian's game, I'd love to have a conversation with him about mm. what was transpiring in Los Angeles <clears throat> in the 60s, in the 70s, and what actually happened before that, you know, that created, that fostered this zeitgeist, this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I want to do is maybe start at the beginning. I'm gonna, And I'm going to christen this the beginning. Sunset Strip in the 40s and 50s. Mm. I I know there was a lot that transpired before that, um, you know, in terms of people giving into their vices, 
it being a, <laughs> uh, it, I say that nicely? <laughs> this 1.6 mile strip of land that was pretty much outside of LAPD jurisdiction. It lay in an unincorporated area of Los yeah, Angeles. Holly, Hollywood is unincorporated, right? Right. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it fostered quite a bit of shenanigans. Um, everything from brothels to casinos to, you know, you name it. Um, well, I, I bet everybody knows, you know, the mall and all of that. Mickey uh, Cohen. And- Mickey Cohen and uh, Ciro's and, um, you know, I mean, hey, look, you know, Hollywood uh, itself is filled with vices. Um there was a movie no. industry here, uh, <laughs> but you know, you know, you know, it's funny. LA does, you know, a lot of people don't recognize that LA really is kind of a backwater until World War II, and it's it's after World War II that the aerospace industry mm-hmm. and the suburbia uh, is built up uh, that it really really becomes this thing, and so it's growing up at this same time that you're seeing this uh, cultural shift the you know the basin the great basin of uh, of Los Angeles so when it came time for us to look at uh, the Los Angeles uh, scene uh, you know that's the scene that we grew up in and mm-hmm. to be honest with you we thought we knew it really well uh no we we, we learned so much uh during uh, the uh, the creation of not, not just that particular episode but you know getting to the the LA scene and so we we started where we were very much focused on people uh you know you know it was obvious you, you start with Chuck Berry and little Richard and uh, Elvis and Buddy Holly uh Richie Valens uh, you know the, you know the, those those are the originals and you could focus on that and we did that up through the Beatles but after that it became really difficult to focus on people so we started to look at geographies london you know the people talk about the british invasion and then when we got to america we did california but instead of just california we found that that the san francisco scene and the la scene were completely and utterly different that and they didn't even like each other no not at all at at all And, and even though they were only 400 miles away You know, if we if we really want to start uh, the, at the beginning, because and, and I, I get criticized for this sometimes. Why did we start in the 50s? You should have started in the 20s, because mm-hmm. in the 20s is where really mass media begins uh, with radio. Um, you know, you could use newsprint prior um, um, books, even prior to that. You know, but then we, we're going back 500 years. That's a little too much. But let's look at technology. <laughs> let's look at, uh, you know, the the ability for people to communicate almost instantaneously. And that's radio. Uh, you get film. Uh, then you get television out of this, um, you know, and then the, uh, the recording uh, business at the same time, all within about a 30 year period It all kind of comes but it starts in about the 1920s um and in la you can say uh you know they uh they kind of the their music business kind of grows up with the um uh, with the movie business um you know sunset sound most people don't know a famous studio uh doors Mm -hmm. recorded quite a bit of their material there uh Mm -hmm. that was originally made uh for disney uh, so that they could get those uh, large orchestras in and record in a professional manner. Uh, and, um, you know, that's where that business kind of grew up. So then you had, uh, you attracted professional musicians looking for, you know, gig work, uh, exactly. you know, studio work, if you will. And, you know, in the in the 40s, you know, you, you had your days, uh, your 40s and the 50s, you had your daytime filled 
uh, scoring the latest Disney movie. Uh, and at night you were, you know, playing uh, at zeros. And yeah, you know, attracted the a bit of the uh, the seediness. And you know, let's face it, you know, Hollywood and anything to do in the entertainment business is about trying to escape having a real job and uh, figuring out a way to party all the time. So once the the work of an actor or studio hound or what have you is done, you know, it's time to go party and uh, let's go down to the Sunset Strip, and that's where all that began. That's exactly it. And in fact, I was talking to one historian, local story around here. He basically said, you lived in Beverly Hills, you went to work in the morning in Hollywood, and you stopped off on the way home at the end of the day <laughs> on the Sunset Strip, right. right? You did whatever it is you didn't want your wife or the rest of your family to know you were doing. And, and you know, <laughs> you, you came home to suburbia, which was yep. Beverly Hills. Yeah. This trip to me was fascinating because it went through so many different incarnations and it was really, at least in terms of the glitz and glamour that was brought to this trip in the 30s and 40s, the genesis of that was really Billy Wilkerson who started The Hollywood Reporter. And he's mm. also plagued with <laughs> the one that brought the mob to the Sunset Strip as well because he had certain ties. He's the one that opened the Trocadero in 1934. He's the one that opened Ciro's in 1940. And he was a big, well-known guy that needed a mob presence around him. And so, you know, you kind of see, okay, this is the epicenter of where Hollywood's now coming to. You know, mm -hmm. it's now late 40s. It's now 1950s. Um, the strip had been clean cleaned up significantly by the 50s because I think they... I don't know they brought in a new sheriff uh, from the things that I've read. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like if you've seen that movie, L.A. Confidential. Yes. Uh, there, there's a bit of that uh, going on. It's not, it's not a, a direct correlation. But, yeah, L.A. decided that uh, it was going to clean itself up. Well, it was, was going to become the city of the future. You know, mm -hmm. uh, again, post-war, uh, you know, um, all that sunshine, uh, free land uh, that they could build houses on. Um, I, I, you know, I lived on off the strip for years, years and years, and I had a fascination, and I've mentioned this before in previous episodes, I've always had a fascination with history and how things come to be, right? Obviously, you do as well, but the evolution of the strip itself and how it even became this epicenter and, mm -hmm. you know, its rise and decline and in these periods of decline, there it was um, Yeah, I mostly remember the periods of decline. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> It, it is yeah. kind of a fascinating thing. And, you know, seeing what happened then in the in the 60s and how, you know, it really gave rise to a lot of the coffee houses and jazz clubs to start populating the area and rents were lower and, you know, these bohemian kids could move in and unfortunately with them, you know. Oh, always the case with art. Uh, you need cheap uh, housing. Uh, otherwise, uh, you're not going to create a scene. Uh, you know, yeah. the artists are, <laughs> are not known for their money management. Uh, and, you know, so you just, you have to have cheap places uh, for the lives. You know, it's part of the the reason that uh, you have the Haight-Ashbury uh, scene uh, sure. up, up here in, in the San Francisco area. It's, again, it was just cheap place for hippies to go and live. Mm hmm. Exactly. And that's essentially what, you know, Laurel Canyon was, too, yeah. out here. I mean, it was a cheap place for kids that were trying to be something or that already were something, you know, like the birds. I think they were probably mm. the, the first to uh, make their way up there or really call it home. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Roger McGuinn, who, you know, was a, a, a studio musician uh, uh, in, uh, in New York and came out here a lot, with a lot of people, um, you know, to escape, uh, I don't know, snow, cold. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, and, and that actually brings up an interesting point because, you know, you talk about Roger McGuinn and he was really part of that village scene on the East Coast with a bunch yeah. of those folkies. Um you yeah. know, Stephen Stills was, uh, most of the crew of the Mamas and the Papas. And mm-hmm. there was literally this mass exodus coming out to the West for greener pastures, so to speak. And you might be able to shed a little bit of light on this because it sounds like a lot of that migration that was happening, you know, around the time of the Beatles really making their mark in 1964 was because they were experimenting with a sound that was soon to be folk rock. Um, and the L.A. scene was a little bit more receptive to that or may have been, for, you know, as opposed to the folky purists that were all over the mm. uh, the East Coast. Interesting. Not point. to mention. Yeah. Not to mention there were a lot more, you know, or maybe there was more opportunity to record out <clears> here, or clubs, things like that. I don't know. But you might be able to shed some light. Well, um, uh, if I could take a stab, um, you know, I mean, folk music uh, started to run its course. And, you know, obviously when the Beatles arrive, it, it, it just changes everything so dramatically. We're still just scratching the surface on how much that that changes everything. You know, I bring up a point to to people that, you know, we did a podcast for Zildjian um symbols um you know one of the most famous symbol manufacturers in the world in fact one of the oldest companies in the world they're 400 years old started in started in constantinople turkey uh and uh one of the oldest uh family-owned businesses here in uh, in america uh still to this day and um uh when we did their podcast and we were doing some research uh went back to the factory and they told me the story that uh that within six weeks of the beatles appearance on ed sullivan they had a backlog of symbol orders that lasted 15 years. Oh my God. So it just, and, and basically what that means, and, and people may have heard this said many times before, and that is the day after the Beatles, um, you know, appeared on Ed Sullivan, you know, every kid started a rock band. Um, and the reason why is because it's simple, uh, you know, three chords uh, and, um, you know, make some loud noise, uh, four guys, and you're good to go. Um, so you could, you know, democratize this and make it available for as many people um, as possible, or should, I should say many white males as possible, because it definitely started that way. Yeah. Um, you know, we've luckily have changed course over the time uh, with with much much consternation and difficulty but uh, at least it's moving in the right direction and has been for a while um but at that time it was very much you know four guys could go boom let's let's make a band those if those limeys from liverpool can do it we can do it too right. and you know I, I i don't know about you but you know i've i've interviewed a lot of rock stars in that age group and that's the, always the story it's mm-hmm. almost always the story I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. 
but but back to your original question of folk. So you know, I mean, you know, um, you know, you know, rock and roll, the original rock and roll, it kind of you know died out uh, some. Um, folk music, uh, black music in America was definitely happening. Uh, folk music, you know, famously Bob Dylan leading that yeah. um, uh, became a, a big thing. And again, you know, one person with an acoustic guitar, you know, telling the truth as as you saw it. And I think that was a, a big factor, you know, coming out of the beats. Uh, you know, uh, grabbed upon, um, you know, by uh, by Bob and, and and his acolytes, and let's face it, uh, you know, Bob is basically doing his version of. Um, who, oh, Woody, Guthrie. Got, Woody Guthrie. Oh, Woody Guthrie. Pete Seeger. Who did? Yeah, Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie. Then Pete Seeger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Uh, you know, uh, and and that was the beginnings of what we call the counterculture, right. uh, and folk music really kind of is the first that really the kids latch onto and can kind of go, yeah, there's something else out there. Uh, I don't have to be the, um, you know, the, the corporate man. Uh, I don't have to live life like my parents. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have to, you know, live by these institutional uh, rules. Uh, and, um, uh, but then the Beatles, of course, shatter all of that. Uh, they electrify it. Uh, and, and so, you know, once you get in 65 and a song like Tomorrow Never Knows uh, is released, I'm wow. sorry, there's there's no going back. There's, you know, the, the folk music is sort of dead at that point. And, right. you know, Bob Bob knew it. That's, 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 that's why Bob went electric. You know, he, he wanted to keep up, you know, and keep what, what was going on. And again, that also helped as well as the competition that existed between those guys in a friendly manner. It was, you know, yeah. it was fun. Uh, but at the same time, these guys were seriously competitive uh, with each other, including mm-hmm. uh, for L.A., the Beach Boys, you know, right. and I think for L.A., it all kind of starts with those guys, um, them, Janet Dean. But, you know, definitely Brian Wilson is without doubt. They were the next powering level. genius uh, of, of the L.A. group, along with. Um, the new set of studio cats that had arrived from all over the the, the country to yep. make it in LA, and that's what we call the wrecking crew. The wrecking crew. They were they were hipper than the old school. Um, the suit and uh, ties know, guys. The suit and tie <laughs> guys. Exactly, exactly. You know, you know, who were there to to do as they were told, uh, and you know, read the sheet music, and you know, clock in and clock out, and you know, and uh, and head home to the the wife and kids. You know, mm-hmm. these guys were more. Um, uh, involved in the creation of that music. And they were also interested in the expansion of it and where it was going. You know, you're getting lots of new technology right. almost on a daily basis. Uh, you know, we went from, uh, you know, uh, early recording techniques to multi-tracks uh, to, you know, the wall of sound, which is sound. created in LA. Yeah. Uh, through Phil Spector, right? Through Phil Spector. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, and so you, you have all of this going on and these great, musicians there to complement that whether they were acknowledged or not at the time and you know we can talk about whether whether that was a good thing or not because there's there's a lot of uh of music um in, in for example the birds the the only bird that was ever allowed to play on any uh a recording was roger roger mcguinn and, yeah and everybody else it was it was the wrecking group basically. right and well, then they, and they come and do the sweet harmonies you know okay. same thing with most of the beach boys stuff uh, especially later on uh and uh you know the mamas and the papas and most of those other bands uh, there in la 
Right. And and I think, I mean, a lot of that, obviously, their talent was unmatched, but studio time out here was so expensive, mm. so hard to get. You had to be a one-take guy. You had mm. to churn out hints. So they started to rely yeah, on tape, this tape's expensive. Rotating. Uh, tape's expensive. Dig, digital is not. Uh, so, yeah, people, <laughs> people seem to forget. It's like, it's like photography. You know, you, you can only take so many pictures because those little canisters of film were rather expensive, you know. Oh, yeah. Now you oh. can just click forever. Now you can just click forever but back then absolutely not and i remember reading (laughs) about terry melcher basically saying when the birds were recording mr tambourine man he was like absolutely not roger you play the rest of you take a step back we're bringing in the wrecking crew and we need to churn this baby out yeah yeah it was a factory it was you know and you know an assembly line uh uh, mentality, uh, you know, uh, very uh, um, uh, corporate sensibilities. Um, you know, these were run by uh, uh, well-known corporations at the at the time. They they had it down, and they knew how to get it uh, starting in the in the 30s and 40s, and they continued that. Even the even though some of the musicianship changed and brought some new things to it. Sure. To your point, there still was you know the 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 red light meant money was on the line, so you better make it. Happen. And the Wrecking Crew, too, it's interesting because we're the, you know, the first, the initial uh, group of musicians that we would give the moniker Wrecking Crew to was brought together by Phil Spector. And Phil Spector was really at this time having a major influence on Brian Wilson. Mm-hmm. He was essentially obsessed with Spectre and what he was doing and this wall of sound. And essentially, from a distance, he taught Brian to produce. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I find so fascinating. And then Brian Wilson really latching on to this wrecking crew and bringing them in for so many different songs um, yeah. and quite a bit of the album of Pet Sounds, like you said. Yeah, especially Pet Sounds. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and again, you know, that creates, um, you know, without Pet Sounds, there's no Sgt. Pepper uh, yeah. because, you know, the Beatles heard that and especially Paul and was like, oh, man, this guy has uh, upped the game. Mm-hmm. We've got to do something to beat that. I remember back, even in my day in the in the eighties, being able to go on the strip and watch a band, and you know, within fifteen minutes to go, those guys have no chance in hell. Versus <laughs> this other band that came on after them or before them, where you're like, yeah, they, these guys might get somewhere, uh, sort of thing, you know, because the talent could be sussed out pretty easily. And then also by 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 about the early nineteen seventies, maybe even the late sixties. As we say in our podcast, uh, music industry goes from four friends, the Beatles very much four friends, to uh, a more professionalized uh, mm-hmm. business. Led Zeppelin is a hybrid. Uh, in fact, you know, we, we talked about in uh, in our latest episode, Led Zeppelin being a hybrid of uh, two professionals, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, and then two amateurs, um, uh, Bonzo yeah. and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and Robert Plant. But, you know, many of these other bands, um, Deep Purple, for example, was, you know, put together specifically for the best musicians. And then they were constantly rotating out to find the better musicians to make themselves even more valuable uh, and be able to create, um, you know, what they considered, uh, you know, a higher quality of music to uh, to gain a larger audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so and now we live in that, that world where it's it's completely professionalized um, uh, yeah. and it's not really about. 
bands. I mean, you see, you see uh, one show up every now and then, um, you know, just recently we've had an explosion uh, by an Italian band called man of skin, uh, which is kind of, you know, mm-hmm. taking the world by storm. Let's see if they have legs. Let's see if it creates, uh, you know, unlike, un- you know, like the Beatles, because of that happened, there were probably a thousand bands that literally you could say this started because of the a direct correlation to that. I, I doubt Man of Skin's going to have that sort of influence. No, no. Well, I think the world was ready for something new. And like you said, they were four friends that were coming together. They were writing their own songs. They had this kind of irreverent shtick that they put on, you know, in front of uh, in front of the press. There were so many things that I think led to their popularity, set aside, you know, Sir George Martin, set aside Brian Epstein, um, and even, uh, you know, Kennedy's uh, assassination and the world being ready for something kind of pop and exciting and Walter Mm -hmm. Cronkite running this fun story, you know, in December of, uh, what was it? Yeah, December of 1963. Yeah, December 63. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. when... uh, uh, when, Oh, I can't remember her name, but basically the Walter Cronkite does this um, last minute story on, uh, I think they ended up, they, they ended up with a couple of minutes extra of this news um, uh, feed. And it was like, Oh, let's run that Beatles thing. And, and there you go. Well, it was the the story they were meant to run. I, I apparently, if I'm remembering correctly, they had run the story on November 22nd on Mike Wallace's show on CBS. They were going to run it again that night with Walter Cronkite. But Kennedy was assassinated. So they scrapped the story. And That's right. That's all right. Wow. about the Kennedy wow. assassination. Yeah. Walter Cronkite, later on, a few weeks later in December, decided to run the story because he thought, you know what? Let's do something a little bit more upbeat. You're right. You're right. You're managed. very good. Thank you for, for giving me the facts. I, I'm sure everybody out there was like, going, no, it's not no. like that. It's like, <laughs> oh, man, I got it. All right. That's it. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying, I, I, I mean, I, I'm glad you confirmed because that's what I remembered. And then from there it was just explosive. And yes, yeah. the girl, Marla, whatever her name was, I can't remember what her name yeah. was, but making that request on air and boom. So there were so many factors that went into them becoming as great as they were. And yeah. then Bob Dylan. Well, and- it's the goods. It's the, it's oh, again, you know, it's the, the always the, day, the overnight the sensation, but if you, if you don't have the talent to back it, you're gone. No. I mean, Lennon and McCartney, you know, uh, McCartney together writing those songs. This was the cream rising to the the top and everybody, all the factors around are kind of clearing the way for them, you know, to really make an impact. And and them with Dylan coming together and essentially most of these folk rock bands citing these two guys or these, you know, two um, artists as the impetus for what they created, mm-hmm. um, like Buffalo Springfield, like the birds. It's really fascinating seeing how this was evolving so quickly. The birds coming and jumping on the scene and then, you know, getting their, um, what's, or getting their feet wet, I guess you could say at Ciro's. And then Dylan coming and joining them. I mean, that cemented them as the rock band of the U.S. at the time, our answer to the Beatles. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, um, as you know, uh, we don't think uh, really highly of the birds. Uh, we prefer <laughs> Buffalo Springfield of the two. Um, I get it. Better musicians, better songwriting. Uh, and let's face it, some of the the birds' best stuff is really cover. Uh, and 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 nothing against them. I, look, uh, they're hugely influential. You know, out of them, uh, obviously the Burrito Brothers and. 
Graham Parsons, right? Uh, Parsons, excuse me. Uh, and uh, on and on. Um, uh, you know, I, I, look, there's no, there's no Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers without that Roger McGuinn, um, uh, 12 string, uh, sound uh, Rickenbacker. And all that. Mm-hmm. Rickenbacker, the Ricky. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, you mentioned Bob and we, we've mentioned him a couple of times, you know, what Bob brought more than anything else was, you know, intelligence to the, the, to the lyrics, uh, depth, introspection uh, too, introspection, um, and, and looking at the world, uh, uh, you know, in very different ways and convincing the Beatles to do the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, and from that you start to get, you know, like I said, tomorrow never knows you, you, you know, uh, you know, day in the life, um, you know, on and on uh, out of those guys Uh, and, you know, Bob uh, influencing uh, everybody else who wants to be a legitimate lyricist uh, and taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, by the intelligentsia and those that uh, that matter. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about another band um, that I would say was not folk rock at all, mm-hmm. but quintessential LA, The Doors. Yeah, um, of all the LA bands, that's my favorite. Uh, I, I was in, I was enamored from the the doors from the the day I learned about them, and I'll give I'll give everybody a story of how I really um, I'd probably heard them before, but I didn't really internalize it until the day Jim Morrison died in uh, 1971. Uh, uh, I was uh, in Texas. I was at uh, my uncle's ranch, uh, and all of the brothers played in a band. Uh, and Jack, one of them was in the pool uh, room playing pool and playing this song over and over and over. And I'm like, Uncle Jack, why are we playing the same song over? He goes, because the guy singing there, he died today. And it was oh. like my fire. Uh, and it was the day Jim Morrison died. And that was my introduction to the doors. And um, not long after that, um, you know, I started listening to um, uh, their their records. Uh, and, and let's face it, Jim Morrison makes a cutting figure uh, to to look at and oh. go, "How do I be like that?" <laughs> yes. And every girl's going, "How do I get that?" <laughs> and that's why I became a musician. Um, <laughs> So between Jim Morrison, yeah, probably Jim Morrison has more to do with me becoming a musician and, and, and seeing my uncles do it as well of like, well, oh, wow, this looks really good. But definitely Jim Morrison was somebody that I felt, oh, I could do that. And mm-hmm. um, uh, let's face it, the doors, they're the beginning of the darkness of uh, of rock and roll. I mean, up until this point, everything's kind of light and fluffy. Sunshine and, pop. And yeah, yeah. and and. Those guys were not <laughs> those, uh, you know, uh, you know, they, 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 they sometimes say that Ozzy's, uh, you know, the, what do they call him? The, the Prince of Darkness. No, no, no. Jim was the original. <laughs> Prince of Darkness. And he went he was too good looking to that's, yeah. and, and in this package of, like, uh-huh. of wow. Um, you know, and, you know, once you know his backstory, you know, the son of a, of a rear admiral uh, who's, you know, out you know, in, in the Vietnam world, uh, at the time, uh, and being 
this cinematic um, lyricist as well. Famously known, uh, he and, and, and Ray uh, Manzarek went to, to film school at UCLA. You know, so they had that in their background. Again, is that not perfect for L.A., you know, for an L.A. <laughs> band? You know, they come out of film school. At uh, UCLA. Yeah, <laughs> and then the right? two other guys went to Santa Monica High School. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, and they're writing songs like, you know, The End, which is, you know, an Oedipal story taken from the classics, um, you know, put into a modern context. Uh, people are strange, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just, uh, you know, on and on, a piece from, you know, and then, and then Jim's antics you know granted he probably had um you know undiagnosed uh mental illness um you know probably depression uh was pretty obvious uh out there maybe you know bipolar not, not that i'm a psychologist or anything but you know i think enough people have looked at that story to say that um you know given um you know modern uh medicine and modern techniques of uh, of therapy things might have been different for jim i think it was obvious that uh, near the end he wanted out uh he did not want to be that anymore he kind of you know like all things grew up you know you get in your late 20s and you you know life is different than when you're in your early the 20s yeah and um boy did they change uh the la landscape uh, i mean what were they together i mean 52 months or something crazy like that it was such a short amount of time and they had such an impact and i have to believe that part of it was this like you said this package that this music Mm -hmm. was being delivered in it was everything you know that the guys wanted to be everything like we said that girls wanted and these messages were just well, coming and this, at and you. This, this darkness that's that's to me the thing about the doors is just this it seems like it's just this re- regular rock and roll at uh, of its day you know unique instrumentation let's face it uh you know it's it's uh, sure. there's not a bass player there's a keyboard player uh playing almost a farfisa almost a comedic sounding uh uh, uh keyboard does uh, in, in the background there and then these long songs about you know you know, human frailties, uh, murder. Yeah. <laughs> just, it just, Destruction. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, but, uh, but again, I mean, I mean, is it, is it, it works in Dashiell Hamill, right? Which is, isn't that LA, um, noir? Uh, you know, so again, it, it all kind of plays into the underbelly of LA, not the, not the Beach Boys and the Mamas and Papas and, uh, and, and that's the association exactly and, the, and the other side that was really being sold, uh, out there from the LA music scene. They were the dark side. They were the bad trip, essentially. And I think, like you said, it's a matter of timing, too, because juxtaposed just down the way, you know, in Laurel Canyon, you had the Mamas and the Papas. You had, you know, like you said, the Birds, Crosby, Stills, yeah. and Nash, Cros- Joni yeah. Mitchell. Yeah. You know, they're all – Joni was a little bit more introspective, but a lot of them were singing about upbeat type of things. They weren't well, getting yeah, – that was that was going to get on the pop charts, and that was going to get, uh, get you a number one hit, and that's what the kids wanted to hear, uh, supposedly – um, but, uh, you know, as we know, that's not all they wanted to hear. They, they, yeah. they, uh, they wanted to hear about them, their lives. They wa- wanted to hear about some of the darkness that they're experiencing and right. know that they're not alone, that they're not the only ones, uh, out there that are going through some of these things. And I felt that it resonated with me more than any of my peers. Now I grew up in the South Bay as well. And I don't know if this was true for you, but I lived in one of the beach towns. I lived in Palos Verdes and it was like a time warp. 
So all the contemporary stuff was playing. You had Sublime, you had Nirvana, you had that sound. But what was also just as prevalent. By the way, direct correlations to the doors, all those bands you just mentioned. Yes. And, but with it, we heard, you know, our, uh, our high school bands were playing the doors. They were playing the stones. They were playing Steely Dan. They're playing the Grateful Dead. You know, they were playing all these songs that I was listening to and really taking to heart, not to mention the influences that I was experiencing at home. My dad was a huge, is a huge doors fan, but I remember getting the cassette tape of the doors. So their self-titled first album. And looking at his face. <laughs> and, you know, but I'd already, it, to, you know, to my credit, I already heard a lot of the music and already decided I liked it. But it definitely reinforced my passion for the Oh, doors. that guy's the one who's doing it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, now I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. But but his music or their music and all music is evergreen, but it still really spoke to that teenage angst at the time when you're so impressionable and you're listening to all this music and you're exploring yourself at the same time. And that's what The Doors did for me. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a fascination with this trip, how their coming about story, you know, moving from, you know, playing all the different venues on the strip and going from the London Fog and getting that audition at the Whiskey and being able to become the house band there and then subsequently three months later, getting themselves fired. But how that scene fostered, you know, the the um, success of a band like that. Well, to me, one of, one of the most precious moments of, uh, of my life was uh, playing the whiskey the first time mm. and standing on that stage and just knowing this is where the doors yeah. uh, started. Um, uh, Van Halen but, as well. And by yeah, my yeah. time, it was Van Halen. That's, that's pretty cool. But for most of the guys in the band, it was Van Halen. For me, it was The Doors. The Doors. And fucking Jim Morrison stood right here uh, <laughs> where I was. And uh, that's 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 pretty cool. So. Yeah. Well, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> <laughs> we jumped all over, and I feel like we didn't even really scratch I, I, the You know, I feel the same way. We're going to have to do this again. So. I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. I'll bring some more topics to the table and I'm just yeah. going to let you go. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate so the much time. To say. It's, um, it's always fun to, to talk to like-minded people that uh, have Likewise. in the music of, uh, of this time. I, I just, I'm sad to say that we're probably behind, uh, you know, where music changes culture. It's back to being, uh, part of the, the, the background, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the kids today don't, they don't, they're not, they don't live and breathe music. Um, it's, it's one of the many things that they do. Um, you know, people used to ask me, you know, well, what is the music that makes uh, a difference? What is that music that's going to change culture? So well, it's not music. It's not music at all. It's social media. That's, that's really how uh, culture is being driven and, and changed. You know, it's just a different world. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to make judgment on that because I haven't seen the end result. Uh, you know, that that's why I feel confident about talking about rock and rolls because I, you know, I've lived it and I've been through it and I've seen it. Uh, and, I, and I think its story kind of has been told, at least the the large portion. Of, will it continue like uh, classical music or jazz or what have you? Yeah, of course. There will always be good rock and roll music out there uh, and good music to be found. It's just not going to... Um, 
uh, change the culture like uh, like it did in, uh, in the late 20th century. Christian's right. The rock music that came out of the 60s and 70s changed our world, and that impact just might not be attainable today. But if you're fascinated with the history of rock and how it evolved with the historic moments and politics of the time, I highly suggest you check out the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, guys. I have a link in my show notes. You will not be disappointed. So a big thank you to Christian Swain for joining me today and keeping me on my toes when it comes to my rock history knowledge. And a big thank you to all of you for listening. I'll see you at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.